Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Missing Stone podcast, where I interview conservationists about their path through their chosen field and the work they are doing today. I hope everyone enjoyed their holidays, whether you got to adventure, spend time with family, or simply rest and recover. This week, I was excited to speak with Dr. Michelle Lute. Vice President of the Board of the Rewilding Institute and Co-Executive Director of Wildlife for All. I was fascinated to talk with Michelle, discussing how growing up on a farm led her into a career advocating for wildlife and the many research projects and advocacy campaigns that helped shape her work today. Michelle discusses the goals of Wildlife for All and the work they are doing to change wildlife management at the state level. We then dive into current events, primarily the reintroduction of wolves in Colorado. If you would like to learn more about Wildlife for All, you can follow the links in the description below. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Missing Stone podcast, everybody. I am so excited to announce this week, Vice President of the Board of the Rewilding Institute and Co-Executive Director of Wildlife for All, Dr. Michelle Lute. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm really excited to speak with you going through everything. It's been interesting. Your mission with Wildlife for All kind of goes a little counter against the rhetoric that is used and not always to the best end in conservation classrooms. And so I was really excited to sit down and talk to you about your mission with Wildlife for All. But I'd love to start first with a little bit more about you. So I always like to start with the first moment that really drew you towards conservation and wildlife. I've got to go way back to one of the only times my dad traveled. So I'm the daughter of at least three generations of farmers in the U.S. and and probably farmers going farther and further back in Germany, where my family is from. So my dad was a county man. He never left the county, right? But he did one trip to the, I grew up in the Great Lakes in Northern Indiana. And he did one trip to Minnesota and he sent back a postcard of a quote, timber wolf. And I was captivated from that very moment. I didn't realize that the Great Lakes, the region I was from, had wildness like that, had wolves. I had no idea. I grew up in this very agricultural dominated landscape uh, with Lake Michigan exerting some of its influence. So I was exposed to nature, but nothing like the wildness that I saw in that postcard. So I was hooked from the very beginning. And it was all about large carnivores. And I realized very quickly that they were one of the species that needed the most help, even if they weren't on the Endangered Species Act. There was so much controversy. I always like a good, healthy debate or a good fight. So that's where I went was large carnivore conservation. So did you end up after that point trying to travel as a kid or trying to get out into nature as much as possible? Or was it all the way till college before you were really able to experience that? I was able before college to travel locally. So my parents, my parents encouraged time in the outdoors. So we went camping, we enjoyed state parks, that sort of thing. And then after college or during and after college was when I really got to travel the world more and get into more wild places and start backpacking. And that really opened up my world yet again. I always love to emphasize just the importance of backpacking to really experience the outdoors. But I'd love to hear that then. So you were outside as a kid, but that really increased as you went into college. So what was that path like to decide 
this is going to be my career? And where did you end up deciding to go? Yeah, that's a great question. My route was somewhat circuitous. I grew up thinking, I love animals, so I should become a veterinarian. Uh, But I was really interested always in wildlife. And I read every book I could on wildlife, um, veterinarian science. And it didn't seem like there was going to be a whole lot of work in that realm. So folks said, oh, you should become an environmental lawyer if you really want to help wildlife. So I thought about that for a long time through college or through high school. And then I realized I really love the science. I love ecology. I love this kind of nascent, evolving science that's not like physics or chemistry. It really is. Ecology can be natural history and it can be very quantitative. And I loved all of that opportunity that that ecology and animal behavior offered. I did a very interdisciplinary undergrad degree at Valparaiso University, wanting to stay close to home. It's a small liberal arts college in northern Indiana. And the environmental science degree is like basically a lot of biology, chemistry, and geography put together. So I had this really interdisciplinary skill set that I built there. And then I got the opportunity to do a master's at Notre Dame. And that was uh, chasing long-tailed macaques around Singapore of all places. So studying primate dispersal and behavior in Southeast Asia, which was really cool. And I was super fortunate to do that. Again, the common theme throughout my career and up until this point in particular was working at the nexus of human dominated landscapes and more wild landscapes. So you think of Singapore as this highly dense urban city state, uh, but actually there's primary and secondary rainforest in the middle of the island where there's the central catchment reserve and lots of forests. So you've got long-tailed macaque monkeys basically acting the way raccoons do in the Midwest. So they're raiding people's fruit trees and garbage cans, sometimes even literally running into somebody's open kitchen window, grabbing food and running out. And I was the the white girl in Singapore chasing these monkeys around, taking notes <laughs> while people are like hosing these monkeys down to get them out of their yard. So human-wildlife conflict was a big theme of this kind of intersection. And at some point during my PhD, which I did at Michigan State University to look at how to move wolf management towards something more like conservation, I realized that we frame so much of this work around human-wildlife conflict when we really could be framing it as coexistence and the possibility of coexistence. So much of my work from my PhD on was trying to understand how do we move from conflict to coexistence? And when we talk about conflict, what do we actually mean? So again, when we say wildlife conflict, we're often talking about human conflict over how we manage wildlife. And that's also opened up a whole new career or discipline and line of thinking in my career, which is to understand how we make decisions in a fair and just process. That's absolutely awesome. And there's a couple questions I'd like to ask you because I do like to get an idea of the decisions and the experiences through that education point for those people who are listening, who are interested in going into these careers. So the first one I'd like to ask is, what what did it feel like going from living on a farm most of your life to suddenly doing international research in Singapore. What was that transition like for you? (laughs) There was definitely some imposter syndrome. Who allowed me to do this? I am totally not not qualified for this. I'm just a farm girl. But I was born with a, a sense of adventure. So I think that helped. And then I had a lot of great mentors along the way. And that brought home a a lesson for me that I still mull over and think about, which is I didn't have a whole lot of examples growing up of 
people who even went to college, let alone postgraduate degrees, let alone international research or research of any sort. And each step of the way, as I was exposed to people who did that and saw those examples, that was so powerful. For a long time, probably up through college, I didn't really think that those things were possible until the opportunities serendipitously fell in my lap in some ways. I worked very hard to be good at science, but growing up, there weren't examples like that. And that's the the powerful thing for me. I've chosen not to have children, but I think of myself as I can influence the next generation by being that that aunt and that mentor to the next generation and show like, I came from rural, very humble, working class backgrounds, and that doesn't have to stop you. There's all there's a huge world that you can enjoy and be a part of. And so I think setting that good example is really important. That's absolutely awesome. And that sets us up for this second question I had, which everybody takes a different path through this field. And it sounds like you went straight from undergrad to master's to PhD. So how did that process work for you? And do you suggest that process for others? Because there's always these conflicting voices in the field of whether you should get work experience first or jump straight in. There's so many different options. So I just love to hear about your personal experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. I can talk about my personal experience. And I think the answer is always going to be context specific. It's going to be about the kind of opportunities that are presented to you because you can have this dream or this very detailed uh, pathway from A to B where you want to go. You can be very organized, have it all planned out. And sometimes the world has other ideas for you and, and some opportunities, new opportunities surprise you and present themselves. And, and sometimes you can't make certain things work. We live somewhat in a world of limitations. So I encourage people to be flexible and creative and open-minded about what gets presented to you for sure. But in terms of my experience, I will add that I worked for the National Park Service as a biological technician in the summers and then a little bit longer into the fall semester. So I was getting some work experience during my undergrad, and that was it was hard to be doing all of it at once. So I would also caution people to like, don't feel like you have to do it all at once. Take your time. Take some breathers. If you're nowadays, burnout is so important to to avoid or stave off. I wouldn't say that I always quite did it the right way, but I did get some work experience in between various degrees, undergrad and graduate degrees. I knew that I wanted to stay in science. So I was sure that I wanted to do a PhD, but PhDs are not for everybody. They're pretty hard. They take a lot of dedicated commitment. You've got to really know the kind of research you want to do. And for some people who ended up in the career I did, having a PhD wasn't necessary. It's really, if you think you might want to be a professor or stay in academia or really do a lot of research, then I think it's helpful. For me, it just ended up really working out because it was so interdisciplinary that I built this body of experience and expertise around not because I had this great foresight, but but having a PhD that was interdisciplinary and ended up working on decision-making and policy so much, that's been uh, so helpful for my career, which just happened to be controversial conservation issues and the wicked problems of making decisions when you've got people who have all these different opinions about wildlife. So the topics really made sense for building a career that ended up being more in nonprofit. So I've been in and out of advocacy and nonprofit jobs, have done state government, federal government, 
and then quite a few university jobs. So it helped me also be versatile. And people will tell you, oh, once you leave academia, you can never go back. I did that several times. It's not true. It can be harder sometimes, but if you grow your networks in these diverse ways, I think that's also been super helpful for my career to be very diversified, but all focused on on the depth of understanding around carnivore conservation really was the common theme, even though I came at it from very different angles. And you mentioned that now you've ended up much more in this advocacy side of conservation. And when you wrote to me, you said there were a lot of advocacy campaigns and research projects that kind of helped lead you to where you are today. So I'd love to hear about some of these pivotal campaigns and uh, research projects. Sure. Yeah. So some of the campaigns that stand out for me, some of them successful, some of them (laughs) mired in, in a lack of progress. So one of the latter campaigns that's still ongoing that I'm involved in that a number of nonprofit organizations are involved in is this effort to reform the U.S. Department of Agriculture's program called Wildlife Services. Now, that might sound like a nice thing. Oh, wildlife services. Wildlife needs services too. That's not what they do. They come in and they kill wildlife at the request of private interests, predominantly ranchers in the American West. And so that's been a program to really, that that initiative helped me understand the insidious nature by which even our federal government and even our state governments say that they're promoting coexistence or conservation, but they are not. They are actually doing the opposite. And how hard it is to get change within those institutions. You would think, you know, government's for the people by the people. And so if the people don't want something to be done, it will eventually change. There's a lot of programs in a lot of places where the shifting the needle takes many decades. So most recently, finally, one small victory, maybe not small, one one medium interim next step victory that's been exciting is that the Bureau of Land Management agreed to stop the use of a certain poison on their managed lands. And that's uh, really the only agency that can put these poisons out are wildlife services. So they're often called M44 devices or M44 sodium cyanide bombs. And they look like a sprinkler and they have sodium cyanide in them and a sticky bait that attracts it's ma- mainly to attract canids, but it will attract all kinds of wildlife. And it's even caught the attention of humans who have been exposed to this poison, thankfully haven't died, but they've watched their dogs die, unfortunately. So it's a really dangerous, indiscriminate tool that wildlife services uses, especially across the American West. And finally, at least one land management agency, the BLM, has agreed to not use them. And so that, I think, is an example of, here's a no-brainer. Here's the easiest thing you could do to reform an agency is to not use indiscriminate poisons that are just littered across the American West that really don't do any good. They don't prevent conflict. They just kill coyotes, wolves, and family dogs. And it's taken decades of very dedicated advocates to finally get one agency to say, okay, we're not going to use this anymore. But they're still being used in other places. And so that's that shows like what we're up against and how hard it is to get change. Even though the science is with you, even the American public is with you, it's still so hard. So that's one campaign initiative that's near and dear to my heart that I think is indicative of the kind of wildlife conservation and advocacy work that we're doing. What else? A, a victory, another one, again, on the use of indiscriminate lethal tools is trapping. 
So we have trapping across the U.S. It's allowed. So you can use foothold traps, body gripping traps, snares. There's all different kinds of devices that are meant to grab the body or a portion of the body of an animal and either drown it or strangle it or hold it in place until a trapper comes to kill the animal. Again, there are not many trappers recreationally trapping. You can't hardly make any money. So there's no livelihoods being sustained by this very outdated practice. And yet, and more than 80 countries have banned this practice. Yet the U.S. is so behind the times in using this this practice. And it often, because it's so indiscriminate, it'll catch threatened and endangered species, non-target animals, and again, family pets. Here's another no-brainer. So easy to increase public safety, to make sure that the increasing number of Americans who want to recreate safely on public lands with their family dogs can do so without worrying that they need to know how to get an animal out of a trap. And so we've had some victories. A number of states have banned this practice. I was very involved in the effort to ban traps, poisons, and snares on public lands in New Mexico, which passed a couple of years ago. One of the biggest victories of my career, and it didn't come at an easy price. It definitely was vilified by people in the public. I would write an op-ed and somebody would counter with just like slanderous, nonsensical sort of things about how I didn't know how what I was talking about. I even had trappers using state records requests to try and get all my employment records with the state of New Mexico to try and find some dirt on me. People care very deeply and get pretty angry about taking away these tools. But here we had a victory in New Mexico and we've had victories in a couple other states, but a lot of states still use these devices. And that campaign and really dedicating a lot of my time And I came in at the end of about a decade's worth of work to ban traps in New Mexico. That really drove home the point for me that we need more fundamental reform. So taking away M44s, taking away traps, trying to stop each unjustified, unethical wolf hunting season state by state is a lot of effort. And it's this is a terrible pun, but it's it feels a little bit like whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> and so that's what brought me to Wildlife for All, is that we're addressing the systemic problem, which is that state agencies and federal agencies cater to the interests of a few hunters and trappers and fishermen. And that leads to the policies that we see that allow wildlife killing contests, that allow all these egregious methods of slaughter. And if we change it fundamentally at the base of the decision-making process, maybe we wouldn't have to fight tooth and nail to end every one of these single lethal methods that have no place in the modern world. So there's a lot of places I want to go with that. And I really want to dive into more of what Wildlife for All is doing. But first, I want to backtrack a little bit to this wildlife services chapter that you were discussing. So with wildlife services, Is that primarily, because you said they're brought out mostly to kill wildlife, is that mostly for carnivores or is there a lot of different wildlife that the Wildlife Services really focuses on? A lot of different wildlife. They publish their kill statistics every year on their website. So you can look at the tallies. Most every year, one of the species that they kill the most are red-winged blackbirds. 
and other birds that might eat fruit. So you've got, you've got, I guess, the cherry industry or the pecan industry or these other agricultural interests that don't want birds eating their crops, basically. And so they'll do a little bit of scaring birds away, but they'll also put out poisons. Poisons are, are the main method just because, again, you can just distribute it the birds eat it and then they all die. And that's easier than sitting there with a gun to either shoot them or scare them away or to put up nets or other things. There's visual and auditory deterrence that could be used. But again, the new methods have been so slow to be adopted. So all kinds of wildlife from birds to sea lions, from terrestrial to aquatic species across the board, their default is lethal methods because that's easy and that's what they know. And they think a pile of dead coyotes is progress. Uh, It doesn't actually do anything to prevent conflict. It just kills coyotes. The old school thinking is that's progress. That's job security for them because what they end up doing when they kill coyotes in particular, but a lot of species will respond by saying, okay, we've got more food to go around so we can have You know, we can have bigger litter sizes, we can feed more mouths. And so the population rebounds, particularly with coyotes. Within as quickly as eight months, the population can respond to this anthropogenic mortality event and grow their population be even bigger than before. So then wildlife services goes in and kills even more. And that's the job security and the vicious cycle of what they do. Are there non-lethal methods that you're promoting primarily, or is the focus first to try to stop wildlife killing and then promote those methods? I think you have to do both at the same time because you don't want to be the, maybe some people do, but I think it's more effective to, if you're going to take away a tool, be offering something else in response. Again, I I grew up with a family of farmers. I'm not anti-farming or anti-agriculture. And I understand that people's livelihoods depend on that and go back generations. And it's important. I don't want to take away tools, but what we're trying to do is offer new tools, a whole suite of tools that are more effective, but they take a little bit of behavior change, a little bit of learning about how to implement those new tools. And those tools can be context specific. You can throw out sodium cyanide or DR-1539 or whatever these other poisons are, and they work everywhere, right? And they kill everything. Sometimes there's a lot of secondary poisoning, but the non-lethal tools can depend on who or what you're protecting over what kind of distance and what kind of terrain. So it's not rocket science, but it does take a little bit of understanding of a particular situation. If you've got cows across a really big distance, a certain kind of dog breed might not be as helpful as another kind of dog breed or certain kinds of fences and rotational grazing regimes, or range riders, which are basically modern shepherds that could cover a lot of distance on a truck or an ATV or a horse, right? But if you've got some sheep in a more residential area, then a certain dog breed that doesn't bark and bother your neighbors, but will chase a coyote away, is going to work a lot better, right? And then certain kinds of fencing going to work a lot better if you're dealing with mountain lions, for instance. Yeah, there's a whole growing body of evidence to support when and where these tools are effective. And that's, that's the beauty of science is we didn't ask these questions for a long time. We just were like, how effective is it to kill 30% of the coyote population? What about 50? What about 70% of the coyote population? That's what we used to ask in science around this work. Now we're asking, okay, what about creating 
stable coyote population dynamics and just trying to protect the livestock that are in and among them. And now we're saying, oh, this actually can really work. There's one last question that I do want to ask before we dive into wildlife for all. And that is you touched again on the fact that you come from a farmer background. So I'd love to hear if you're willing to share kind of how it what your relationship with your parents has been like since you come from these generations on generations of farmers and a lot of the work you're doing unfortunately farmers view as almost an opposite and I I don't want to say that blanket but some farmers will view as in opposition to them even though ultimately you're trying to do something that's beneficial for both wildlife and farmers however It's, as you mentioned earlier, it's a little controversial. So what has that been like? It's interesting because I I grew up with my dad telling these stories of growing up on a farm. And some of those stories are pretty upsetting, pretty gnarly, that life and death on a farm happens very quickly without a whole lot of sentiment. So I grew up with those stories and I, I never really accepted them in terms of becoming indoctrinated to that's how you treat animals. They are tools. They're here for our use. And as I've grown up and had conversations with my parents, I've seen that their thinking has evolved on these issues. I don't want to take all the credit for it. It's obviously there's societal shifts that are happening as well. But my my dad seeing my care for wildlife and learning about the issues and also dogs. So again, <laughs> I've decided not to have children, but I've adopted plenty of dogs. And that relationship, particularly with my dad, my mom didn't need as much shifting. She was already a lover of wildlife and animals. But interacting with dogs in the home also, I think, shifted my dad's ideas about the rich emotional lives of animals and their own autonomy. And he, it was there. It's there with everybody. You're born with that. And when you grow up on a farm, you have to be indoctrinated away from that. So a lot of my dad's stories are of trauma around these things, but I don't think he would have thought of that as trauma. It was just like, that's how it is. But they actually stuck out in his mind because they were upsetting. Seeing cows that are very upset and strangle themselves to death because they're tied to a rope or something. And and it's an aggressive bull that nobody can get near or the dog that was sick and just got put down because you're not going to spend money on a vet, those kind of things. I'm very close with my parents. And so we've all learned from each other in a lot of ways. And it's been a beautiful story to, I think, watch everybody's thinking evolve on these issues. And they also keep me honest about, about some of the limitations that people are coming from when they come from a farming background. And then I will also note that my grandfather and great-grandfather didn't do a whole lot of killing wildlife that might have been getting crops. They never had issues with cows. But in my grandfather's lifetime, coyotes were coming back to the area. They were a novel predator. In a lot of places, when we see wolves coming back or coyotes coming back, people are like, I don't know how to deal with this animal. I've definitely got to kill it because this is just totally new to me. And I didn't grow up with anybody telling me how to handle it. But my family, they were pretty innovative and they knew that they didn't necessarily need to trap coyotes. And so they were already intuitively coexisting in a lot of ways and learning how to protect their livestock without lethal methods. Has there been a point where you've had one opinion on wildlife in this case and 
your family has actually changed your mind to a certain extent or changed your perspective? That's a good question. I'm so hard headed that even if it <laughs> happened, I probably have, have blocked it. I can't think of anything in particular, but I can think of lots of conversations where my dad reminds me of the reality and the limitations and the equipment and everything that's involved in, in the work that, that looks very easy. We see a combine harvesting a crop and we think, oh, it's so easy. They're just sitting in the combine going up and down. And you forget about everything that's behind all of that. That's what's been so useful is to hear my dad talk about how far we've come in technology around agriculture and still just how hard it is. And again, we have insurance, but still a bad weather year can really, uh, again, if you're a crop farmer, especially, but it, it affects people with animals too, that can really set you back. So those considerations have been important for me to remember. I feel like that's a great note for us to kind of transition into some of Wildlife for All's mission. So I like to start this portion just hearing from you, what is Wildlife for All's mission? And then you also call yourself an advocate. So what does being an advocate mean to you? I know that's two separate questions, so I can always repeat one if needed. <laughs> okay. I'll start with the mission. So Wildlife for All's mission is to make state wildlife management and its decision-making more just, democratic, compassion, compassionate, and focused on ecological health and well-being. So right now, state agencies think about selling licenses for hunting and trapping. And so they mostly focus on sustainable uh, populations of the species that people want to hunt and fish. And they're really not doing a whole lot of anything for conservation of threatened and endangered species that would happen at the federal level or also at the state level or species have got greatest conservation need. So we're really getting, we're trying to reform state agencies and commissions to be considering the vast majority of Americans and their constituents in each state and the ways that they value and care about wildlife, which is not happening right now. So that's the mission in terms of my role as an advocate. I really, because of my science background, my kind of very particular niche in advocacy is to digest and translate the science and really and figure out the ways that it informs good policy and decision making for, for a certain set of values, which is that wildlife have intrinsic value. They have the right to exist beyond their use to anybody else. That doesn't mean that sometimes wild lives aren't taken for certain reasons, but to make sure that those reasons are only the ones that are justified and that society agrees is ethical and, and moral. So that's my role as an advocate is to translate the science and pull in the ethics because values are at play in every conservation decision. And a lot of people want to pretend like they're not there. And so when they're implicitly built into a management plan or a conservation decision, uh, it's not as clear and it's not as robust as when we recognize the values that we're upholding when we make a decision. So science informs what we might do. Uh, it says if you take a certain percentage of a population, the population next year might be at this level or that level with certain degrees of uncertainty, right? The science doesn't tell you that you should or shouldn't do that. The science just says, here's the possibility, here's a suite of outcomes if you take certain actions with a certain degree of uncertainty. And so we have to bring ethics explicitly into the process to consider people's values and all of the values that wildlife have and represent. 
On that concept of ethics and bringing ethics into this conversation, having gone through conservation programs in schooling myself and working for a state agency, I found when I was reading the mission that's on Wildlife for All's website, a lot of the language you used made me second guess a lot of the stuff that we're learning in terms of you talk about harvestable surpluses and consumptive users, and we can get into kind of what exactly that means. But when you're sitting in a conservation classroom, they really do tell you that hunting, fishing, all of these things are the most important part of conservation to a certain extent. Yes, we all want to save these ecosystems, but the path to do so is through hunting, fishing, and this traditional conservationist viewpoint rather than a preservationist viewpoint. I'd love to hear how Wildlife for All is really working to bring these ethics in. And I'd love to hear your explanation of kind of that harvestable surplus uh, view of conservation. Okay. I'll try and not, I'm going to have to go back in history a little bit. I'll try and not be too long-winded here. But a lot of this started early on with the, the preservationist versus conservationist views. So you've got John Muir saying, we should set wildness aside and it should be untrammeled by man, right? And then you've got Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot saying, wildlife is really for humans and we should conserve it for the greatest good for the greatest number of people, right? And that's what conservation became synonymous with for so many people. And at the get-go, it's confusing because some people say conservation and they mean preservation or they mean biodiversity conservation. And then a lot of folks in North America, when they say conservation, they're thinking of this harvestable surplus kind of model where white-tailed deer and turkey weren't doing well until people realized, oh, if we protect them, get their populations up, then we can hunt them. So that sort of model of conservation worked really well for species that people want to hunt, but it doesn't do anything for insects or any species that people don't want to eat or hunt or hang up on the wall. And it doesn't do anything for biodiversity conservation. So people want to talk about this model of conservation. It's been codified as what is referred to as the North American model of wildlife management. And there are these seven tenants and people think that's the end all be all of conservation and that it's worked so well. Yet we're in a biodiversity crisis. We're orchestrating and witnessing the sixth mass extinction of, of life on the planet. So I would argue that the North American model hasn't really done all that well. It's done great for a couple species. And even certain species like, like mule deer are not doing that well, despite people really valuing them to hunt them and eat them. So it's fallen short in a lot of ways. And it's also not rocket science. We have good science on what conservation would take, what kind of actions we should take to protect biodiversity and to protect individual populations that aren't doing well. And so that's what Wildlife for All really promotes is we're not trying to take away hunting. We're not saying that you shouldn't use your conservation models to protect white-tailed deer, or mule deer, elk, turkey, waterfowl have been protected pretty well because people hunt them. But one that's not the only justification for protecting those species, but also we're not taking that away. We're saying there's this whole other realm 
that needs to be considered that hasn't been, and it needs to be well-funded and it's not right now. And that does great things for the wild places that we all love. So one of the things that I hear you saying is that umbrella species aren't always the most effective conservation tool. And so for listeners who are who haven't heard the term umbrella species before, that's when uh, one species is protected and many people view that as the ability to protect a whole ecosystem by protecting a single species in that ecosystem. But as you mentioned, a lot of insects, plants, and other species can have a lot of negative impacts come from that conservation model. So I'd love to hear some alternatives that you guys have found that you think would work really well. That's a good question. That's a tough question. I do want to note that umbrella species could work really well. If we were properly protecting species like apex predators or highly interactive species like beavers, if we were effectively protecting them, they would be great umbrellas. But I think we've fallen short in really taking advantage of that model fully. I think migratory species like monarchs could also do a great job at at telling the story of how we need to connect wild places and the corridors between them. So you've got to have pesticide-free areas in between those protected reserves that are really good habitat for various migrating species. So the umbrella species model could work. Arguably, you could also do a bottom-up kind of approach and think about habitat and biodiversity and how do you really protect these these core wild places or places that are really good wildlife habitat, whether or not they're on private or public land, and then how do you connect them? So I think that's where Wildlife for All's work really meets the Rewilding Institute's work, um, which is thinking about these four cores, four C's of, of conservation, cores, corridors, carnivores, and coexistence. That needs to be happening everywhere. And to do that effectively, we have to have just democratic decision-making. So that's a lot of what wildlife focuses on, uh, wildlife for all focuses on, is how do we get good decision-making processes? Then organically through those good decision-making processes that consider diverse values and consider the science and the ethics, we're going to come up with all different kinds of answers to your question about what really works well. Uh, because it's going to be state-based, it's going to be context-specific to the needs of the people in that state, uh, and it can be scaled up when state-by-state state, all of your neighbors are participating in promoting corridors and protecting certain species that range between those states and don't pay attention to those boundaries. So I think that's the answer is democratic just process, and that means true public participation and input. That means listening to the scientists and their expertise and not letting undue influence for certain special interests sway the decision-making process and bias it away from what's best for all. So some of those specific things are diversifying commissions. So commissions and boards in each state are the ultimate decision-makers. People think it's the state agency biologists. It's not. They present their findings to commissions and boards, and then those folks make the decisions. And in most states, those folks are appointed by a governor, and they're often friends of the governor or big donors of the governor, and they're often representing agricultural or hunting and trapping and fishing interests. And they're not representing the vast majority of the constituents in their state that care about wildlife for all different kinds of reasons. But diversifying boards and commissions to be representative of the people in that state that care about wildlife 
would go a long way towards reducing the bias in the decision-making process. And I think the other really important thing is diversifying funding. So right now, funding comes from a few sources. License sales are one of one of the major sources in most states. And then Pittman-Robertson, which is a federal act that's an excise tax on certain sporting equipment, and that excise tax goes towards the states. And people say, it's all hunters and anglers that are paying that excise tax. But there's a you know tax on uh, gas that people use in their boats that they're not using it for fishing. So that kind of muddies the waters in terms of who's really contributing to that source of money. It's a big pot of money, um, but it still could be diversified so that it's not just coming from hunters and anglers and people who buy boats, but is coming from everybody who cares about wildlife. There's a couple of states that have sales tax, like Missouri has a a sales tax. So they're taking it from the broader general public, and that's going to fund the state agency. And they, they have a lot more money than a lot of other states do. So that's a place to look is diversified funding and diversified commissions and boards are two of the tools that we can consider in the short term. I think there's more that we could be talking about in terms of democratic process in the long term. And when you bring up democratic processes, I'd actually like to pose to you a current topic. And we talked about this topic a little bit ahead of time. So I feel like it'll flow pretty well. But with wolves being currently reintroduced in Colorado, one of the things since I was working for Colorado Parks and Wildlife until very recently that would get brought up is that basically the front range voted for wolves and they're being introduced into areas where 80, 90% of the people voted against wolf reintroduction. So Mm -hmm. when you see these democratic processes, a lot of the times the people voting for these issues aren't always the ones that are then having to coexist with this wildlife. So I'd love to hear your side of this and how you feel situations like this might be either better handled or the best way to handle this one. Yeah, such a good example. Such a democracy is messy. So there's not really, and it's maybe not the best decision making model. It's just the best one that we have. I'm paraphrasing like Winston Churchill or something, I think. So you can't get away from it. There's no perfect model. And we talk about being concerned about tyranny of the minority, saying like certain special interests that are a small subset of the population are driving so much of the decision making. There's also tyranny of the majority. And that's what people are concerned about with things like ballot initiatives. They can refer to it in a derogatory term like ballot box biology, that the vast majority of the general public doesn't really understand what's going on. And so they'll vote on something and it might not be the most informed policy. I would counter that with Colorado Parks and Wildlife's process was very careful. So the voters voted and it was a slim majority. Sometimes I compare it to the slim majority of people who believed that President Biden actually won the election. So again, how informed we are about various things is debatable on all kinds of topics, but we live in a democracy where people sometimes vote and we vote in certain ways. The voters spoke won by a slim majority. And then Colorado's Parks and Wildlife created a a pretty thoughtful process and had multiple stakeholder groups. They had a whole group for scientists and various folks with expertise on this issue that all came together in a management plan that had lots of public input. Now, I'm not super happy with the final management plan, 
But I do think that the best intentions went into the democratic process after that, after the vote was cast. So CBW did a pretty good job, I think, in terms of, at least relatively speaking, compared to how other wolf management stakeholder groups or decision processes have gone in other states. So I think that's part of it. I think the urban-rural divide is, I'm going to say was, in the past tense, was real, but that's changing now, especially past post-COVID. We've got amenity migrants, uh, people who can remotely work anywhere that are moving to rural areas. We're self-aggregating based on our politics. The Republicans from California are moving to Texas or Montana. The liberals from those places are moving to California or Colorado. So all of that is shifting in terms of rural folks don't want these things. Urban folks do. And then I also want to point to like P22, that mountain lion that lived in LA. A lot of people want to say, oh, you'd think differently if that carnivore was in your backyard. People in LA actually really liked liked P22. So uh, I think urban folks are willing to put their money where their mouth is in a lot of ways. And in so many decision-making processes, I hear this whole thing about the rural folks and the hunters. We care about wildlands. We understand wildlands and we're willing to pay for them. So you don't think people in Denver are going to hike and backpack and really care about wildlands? So I think, I think we make these assumptions and it's human nature to want to assume, oh, you're this kind of person. So you represent what I think about that group. And I'm not a part of that group. So I actually don't know the nuances of all of their values. So that's social identity theory. That's something that I've used in my dissertation work to understand why we fight about wolf management, but it's been used and applied in all kinds of cultural wars and culture clashes, gay marriage, smoking bans, abortion, all these controversial things, we can understand and predict the way people will vote or what their opinion is on a policy based on their social identity. And we're all really bad at recognizing that these in-groups, these identity groups are actually represented or made up by individuals who do vary in their beliefs. So we can't say that all hunters are this way or all farmers are this way or all wolf advocates are this way. So I think it's hard to get at that level when we've got 8 billion people in the world to be thinking about the nuance of every individual when they think about. But I think we can think more carefully about the varied opinions and the diversity of opinions within certain groups. So I rambled on there. There's a lot there, but I think the ballot initiatives generally and this reintroduction effort is is so interesting and it's so challenging and it's going to make us think really creatively about how we do conservation. Definitely. And I do find it really fascinating that by making it a ballot initiative, Den or not Denver, Colorado found itself in a very interesting position where they were then legally required to make sure wolves were on the ground. And having seen those decisions, while a lot of people would have loved more time to put wolves on the ground, in the end, wolves probably never would have made it on the ground if there wasn't a deadline. So it is very fascinating when you see that democratic process make an absolute that it does make sure that ultimately you do achieve that goal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the neighbors in Utah and Wyoming were were going to make it very hard for wolves to get there in the end. And that speaks to, I think, particularly the younger generation. But I think a lot of us are feeling we're running out of time. 
there's stuff that we should have been doing for conservation or climate change a decade ago. So we can't sit on our laurels and wait for maybe a few wolves to reproduce in Colorado. It would have maybe taken decades. And then you hear stories like people baiting wolves that were in Colorado to get right across the state land, and then they were killed in Wyoming. So again, that just shows you what you're up against. And these borders make no real ecological sense, but can make all the difference in the survival of a population. So I'd love to transition from here into, I ask the same four questions to every guest to get an idea of conservation today. And so these can either be rapid answer or you can extrapolate as you would like. But the first one is, what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? Can I say yes? All of it? (laughs) I'm biased, but I think the highly controversial species, the apex predators and the highly interactive species, that actually, in terms of we were talking about umbrella species, they would be powerful. If we allowed beavers to exert their influence and increase the resiliency against fire of certain landscapes, game changer, huge. If we could let bison roam, huge change. If we could allow apex predators to exert their outsized benefits across ecosystems and make them healthier and wilder, that I think is the thing that needs the most attention, rewilding with carnivores and highly interactive species. And one thing that I didn't bring up that I usually do like to ask when it comes to carnivore advocacy is the first person I talked to on this podcast my friend Brian Shu is completing his PhD looking at um, carnivore human coexistence in Africa and the Masamara. And I love to ask, when you look at other countries as a whole, but especially Africa, they, the protection of carnivores is so much greater due to safaris and travel. And so I love to ask people if they feel that kind of if the U.S. maybe tried to shift to more of a wildlife viewing uh, as a travel plan, and I don't know the best way to phrase this, but we do see this up in Yellowstone where people go to see wolves, people go to see grizzly bears. And so do you think that'd be maybe a way to help protect wolves in Colorado in the future, help protect mountain lions throughout the country? Or do you think that the way the U.S. is set up, it'd be very difficult to do. No, I don't think it would be difficult. I think the possibility is already there and it's happening to a certain extent in Yellowstone. It could be happening in the Gila if there were a more codified national monument around the great wilderness legacy of Aldo Leopold. It's already there and we've got science to support that. So there's a really cool study with the title Contrasting Bobcat Values by Mark L. Brock, I believe, and a number of co-authors. And they just detail one bobcat in Yellowstone that was highly visible. All of the value that's brought to local economies from the existence of that one bobcat for wildlife viewing versus the $200 maybe that you'd get from the pelt of a bobcat, right? And so that just speaks volumes. It's orders of magnitude more money to local economies. And that would keep the American West alive. That would keep rural places alive is to promote ecotourism. I think there's a big caveat and caution that we can love places to death and we do need to protect wilderness and core habitat and that even backpackers or other recreationalists can impact wildlife and habitat. So we have to be careful. But I think that's the transition while we live in a capitalist society with as many people as we do. 
is to focus on ecotourism and and wildlife watching. And that monetary component I hear get brought up a lot that you might get $200 for a pelt or meat of a species, but that it could bring $200,000 in wildlife viewing. Do you know how they calculate that potential 200000 I can't explain it in detail, but there are environmental economists that um, will sometimes survey people, their willingness to pay for certain goods or services. Uh, but I think in the context of this study, they might have just tried to calculate how many people viewed this bobcat in Yellowstone, and they probably took into consideration how many were really motivated to see wildlife. And then they averaged various, like, how much gas did they buy? How long do they stay? How many meals does that translate to locally? So you probably do a lot of averaging. And I'm, you know, again, not, not an economist, so I'm uh, probably butchering explaining this. But they take into consideration those sort of factors. Sometimes they survey and say, what's your willingness to pay? And then sometimes they're just like, okay, the average Yellowstone visitor stays there for a week, buys this many meals, has traveled on average this far, that sort of thing. That's really interesting. So transitioning to the second of these questions, what areas of conservation do you want to see grow? Again, I'm biased. I'm I'm falling back on the things that I focus on most. I want to see wildlife policy grow to be more science-based and more ethical. So I want to see the interests of wild nature and wildlife considered for their own right. I would like to see, you know, this is long-term. Right now, to bring a lawsuit to protect something wild, you have to make it about people. Your standing declarants are, are humans saying, I'm impacted by this policy decision. My desire to be in a wild place and see this wild animal, that's what matters. That's what brings standing for a lawsuit. I would love to see conservation in North America expand the way it has in places like New Zealand or India or Ecuador, where they've written the rights of nature or particular elements of nature, like rivers, into the Constitution and say they're protected. That's where I'd like to see us grow. But that's huge next level stuff. In North America, there's been some lawsuits brought to protect elephants, individual elephants or great apes and their rights to exist and have a healthy life that's not in captivity or not in a really dire situation in captivity. And that needs to keep getting pushed and expanded so that we can protect the rights of nature for their own sake. And so then what concerns you on the other side about the future of conservation? The divisiveness of this country. So I, I referenced it a little bit in, in talking about how we're self-aggregating geographically based on our politics. And it's happening at the neighborhood level. And people display their politics with their bumper stickers, with the schools that they send their kids to, with the grocery stores that they go to. And we're not interacting with people who think differently from us. And so that goes to all sides. And that impacts every kind of decision. And social scientists in North America are seeing that self-aggregation results in more extreme polarity among people. So Republicans and Democrats don't get along nearly as much as they used to because we just don't even talk to each other. And when we do, it's a fight on Facebook. And so that's not real dialogue. And we're not recognizing the humanity in these political identity groups that we don't identify with. So we're not speaking to each other. We're not listening to each other. And that extreme polarity also happens within the identity group. Liberals or Democrats are even expecting people within their group to toe the party line 
not question the authority, not bring in new ideas. So we're not creative and we're fighting amongst ourselves for the smallest kind of purity tests. And that's, I think, very dangerous. And that applies to what we're doing in conservation. I think I bring up the word collaboration, which I'm from the more radical left environmental movements. That's more where I identify. And I bring up collaboration with my colleagues. And they're like, that's a four letter word. That's, and they can point to all these really understandable reasons why collaboration hasn't worked. Forest service planning, where collaboration just reduced a good policy down to the lowest denominator and effectively didn't do anything. But I think true collaboration, true creativity, true open-mindedness is going to be the thing that gets us out of these crises because we're in a crazy amount of the crisis around democracy, the crisis around the climate, and the crisis around biodiversity are all threatening everybody's way of life. So crisis means we had to collaborate, even if we don't necessarily want to. Have you found any tools that you've used that has helped you reach, I'll say reach across the aisle or to collaborate with different groups when it comes to wildlife specific issues? I think that's been very relational, taking a relational approach to every conversation, every decision-making process. If you're the representative on a stakeholder group, if you're a commissioner, if you're a decision-maker, or you're a person giving public comment, walking into the room, knowing your values, being ready to speak passionately for them, but also giving the space for other people to do that and listening to that and recognizing that even if I don't agree with all of it, maybe there's some common ground. And I think this can sound kind of kumbaya and handholding and woo-woo, but I think it really comes down to just being relational and not assuming that somebody is the prototypical idea that you have of their identity group. So some hunters are totally with us in Wildlife for All and saying, yes, there needs to be space for your voices in the room, not just mine. And yes, I'm a hunter, but I actually like wolves. If we had just assumed all hunters felt a certain way, we wouldn't have made those relationships and learned from those folks about how they love the wild world by hunting deer, even though that's never going to be something that I do. I can respect that. And so I think just continually doing that, and that's hard work. and some days you don't want to do it, but listen and and be open-minded, I think is is important. Definitely. And this last one, advice to future conservationists. Oh, that is so hard because I thought it was hard for me. And it's I think it's going to get a lot harder before it gets any better. So I would say be resilient, endure the conflict, find the ways to overcome the crises and the grief that we all have to witness given what's happening in the world. And I think hope works for some people. And for some people, maybe it's anger. And sometimes it's just focusing on the vision of where we have to go, even though we're so far away from that. And then you don't, you know, you don't get there overnight. So I'm giving all this advice, things that I struggle with that I'm still figuring out. I'm so impatient, but I think cultivating patience and grit and endurance will help us get through these really hard, dark times and lead to the vision and talk to each other. Some of the best catharsis I've had is to talk to older ecologists and mentors who have held the last of a dying frog species in the rainforest from when they were discovering chytrid chytrid fungus. And knowing that he kept doing conservation and how did he work through that? 
that's been so inspiring. Like they've seen it all. It's been hard. We can endure this, be witnesses, sit with the pain and the grief and the anxiety of what we're doing to the planet and then come together, focus on that vision and that common ground. Cause that's the only way we're going to get to a better, wilder place. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure.